Well, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to this particular session, which I hope will be a, a very fruitful one. Perhaps I may begin by telling you an inappropriate story. It's about a fifth grade uh, school teacher who asks the class uh, who they are, because it's the first time that she's actually met them. And she says, we'll go around the class if we may, and I'll, I'll tell you who I am and what I do and what my husband does. And then we'll go around the class. You introduce yourselves, and if your mom and your dad are working, please uh, say what they're doing. And this is all going splendidly well until they come across a little boy called Johnny, who clearly doesn't want to be present at this uh, experience. But um, peer pressure forces him to conform. And so he says, well, actually, uh, I don't have a mom, but I have a dad. Uh, he's an exotic dancer in a gay cabaret. <laughs> Slight uh, moment of silence there. The teacher goes across the room, finishes the discussion, sets the class, a reading assignment. Then the school bell goes. They come along. They leave. And she asks Johnny to come to her desk. And she says, Johnny, is this really what your dad does? And he looks at her with a certain disdain and says, of course not. No, he works for the Kerry campaign. I was just too embarrassed to tell the other kids. <laughs> now, the two presidential candidates who stood for high office a few weeks ago were not John Kerry. Uh, they were standing on a different platform. We're different. John Kerry was definitely establishment. Uh, and whatever you think of the candidates, they were claiming to be non-establishment. In other words, presidential candidates for the 21st century. And we shall see quite soon whether Barack Obama is uh, establishment or not, whether he's going to be another FDR, as some people think, because we're in a financial and economic crisis, which some have uh, compared, rightly or wrongly, with uh, 1929, 1932, whether he's going to be another Jimmy Carter, who also got over 50% of the popular vote, the last Democratic president to do that, or whether he's going to be a candidate who's going to be overwhelmed by events, like uh, perhaps the majority of American presidents in one way or another, except we can't remember the events, therefore we can't remember the presidents. This is a key election because the challenges that face the next president of the United States are probably historically defining. I hate this idea when you see, particularly in the Sun newspaper, this is a historical moment, since I'm not quite sure that the Sun newspaper knows a historical moment if it's staring it in the face. But the fact is, this is a historical moment. It's the end of the unipolar moment. The United States is no longer a unipolar power. It's sharing power with others. Perhaps it has for some time without knowing it, but it is. Next year will be the first year in 30 years in which Japan, Western Europe, and the United States will have negative growth for the first time. This is a major challenge to the West's position internationally and where it faces itself. And we also have, of course, the question of US leadership generally, economically, uh, obviously recent events. So it's absolutely appropriate this evening that we have three panelists who are going to tell us how significant this election is, how important the choices have actually been, how important the candidate who's been chosen is in terms of challenging him. I think uh, I've been in this business for a, a long time, uh, as have all the panelists, and I have been reading books on the decline of the United States since I became first interested in the United States since the 1960s. 
Never have I seen an election where the political class of the United States and the candidate the political class puts forward to the American people has been more important than this. Because quite frankly, if the United States is to duck the decline, which we Europeans, of course, in our typical European way, feel is inevitable, it is because the political class can do something it can't do in Europe, which is produce a candidate who can make the inevitable difference. Can I please introduce the people who will be speaking here, beginning with Jessica Matthews, who is, was in the National Security Staff, National uh, Security Council Staff, uh, Director of Global Issues, and then Director Under Secretary of State in the Clinton Administration. She served both in the Carter Administration, first of all, in the National Security Staff, and secondly, as Deputy Under Secretary of State in the Clinton Administration. She's been on the editorial board of the Washington Post, she has been a, a co-founder of uh, the World Resources Institute. She's a member of Carnegie uh, Institute, which many of you will know is one of the leading think tanks in the United States with offices across the world in Beijing, in Brussels, in Washington, and in Moscow, and in Beirut, which I didn't know until this evening. She will speak first. Then we will have one of the panelists, I won't name him, and one of the other panelists, when I say I won't name him, he will have been outed already, described as a minor national treasure, right. with the emphasis on minor. Indeed, he recognizes it himself. <laughs> that is Professor Mick Cox, about whom I shall say nothing more. <laughs> and then there is uh, Professor Bob Singh, who is at Birkbeck. has been there since 1999. Uh, he is a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, associate fellow of the Institute for the Study of the Americas in the University of London and an honorary fellow of the Foreign Policy Association of New York. They will talk in that order and at the end of it we will throw it open to a question and answer session and we will, depending upon the questions and answers given, particularly the answers, end at around about uh, five to eight. Jessica, if I could ask you to speak first. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be here. And um, I must say, it's, this is my first time um, abroad since the election feeling like I am not representing a country that's in a certain, uh, at least in Europe, um, uh, doghouse. And it's... Um, in a very long time, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's quite a different feeling. Um, I wanted to spend a few minutes talking about what this election means domestically, because that will, of course, frame what President Obama can do internationally. And then, as I've been asked, outline what I think are the key strategic issues, some of the, some of the issues that, uh, where we really don't know where he's going to go, um, and, and some of the, um, uh, uh, you know, the key debates that I expect will happen inside his, his administration and which will be determined by, by whom he appoints. Uh, but the first thing I think to say about this election was that it is at long, thank God, last, the end of the 1960s in the United States. The civil rights movement as we knew it is over. The women's rights movement is over. Um, I don't mean to say that these issues are closed, that somehow we've magically um, uh, ended all racism, ended all gender discrimination. Of course not. 
but they are fundamentally transformed both by, by this election and by w what happened earlier with Hillary Clinton. Um, just to give you a little personal sense of this and, and how it reverberates in the American political scene, the last time I was in Grant Park, and I was not there election night, was in August of 1968. I worked on the national staff of Gene McCarthy's presidential campaign, and I got a call in the convention center that some of our staff had been attacked by the Chicago police, and one of them in particular badly injured and was at a police station, and could somebody come please try to get them out into a hospital? The scene in Grant Park was the focus of the violence of uh, the anti-war protesters, who had become much more than anti-war protesters. By then, it was anti-government. And it was a scene of, um, I did go there that night. It, it was um, uh, swathed in tear gas and butyric acid, which is something that smells like vomit. And there were policemen just knocking their truncheons on the heads of everybody they could get to. And lots of people were, were very badly injured that night. And they were taken to police stations and left there with infected skulls. And, um, and it was on purpose that the Obama campaign chose Grant Park as the scene of this extraordinary occasion Tuesday night. So for Americans, there's a lot of resonance um, there And I do, in the same way that I think a good part of the world sees America very differently now, Americans see America very differently now. Great, huge swaths of them. Um, and I'll come back in a minute to, to why, because I think they do outside of the sort of directly affected groups. This election is also the end of the Reagan Revolution. Our political eras tend to be about 25 years, and this one is just right on schedule. We saw it beginning to end in the 2006 election when the Democrats picked up 30 seats in the House of Representatives. And there was clearly the beginning uh, of, a, of a real shift. And the Reagan revolution was also clearly at that time beginning to run out of ideas. But you had to kind of look, you had to be really deep into it to to see that. Now um, it's very evident. For the first time in, uh, well, I guess 30 plus years, uh, you have one party with a working majority in the House, the Senate, and the White House. It's been a, so in more than a generation. Um, but the core ideas of the Reagan Revolution um, that uh, first of all, government is the problem. Um, the, that idea has really begun to lose steam already on lots of different grounds, on the failure of a lots of privatization of a lot of different parts of the economy and, and, and other things. But certainly the financial crisis um, uh, kind of was a nail in the coffin. I think there is a real question, certainly there was in my mind, whether Obama would have won um, had it not been for the financial crisis. And I think one of my co-panelists is going to talk about that a lot. 
But the fact is that um, having one and having one as powerfully and convincingly as he did, and then having one in with the mood that he created, um, it, it, it kind of doesn't matter. Um, and so I think there's a certain paradox there. Um, uh, but both politically and ideologically, the Reagan revolution is over. Democrats picked up at least six Senate seats. There are a couple that are still too close to call. At least, um, I think, 18 House seats. There, there are several that are still too close to call. Um, uh, and, and so we have this transformed political agenda. This is, of course, and, and this is a major point, an enormous temptation to fail for the Democrats, to overreach and fail. And, um, and, and um, it's one of the things you need most to be looking for. Um, it was also an end to the accelerating debasement of American politics, that we had become so good at nasty politics that it had both increasingly worked and increasingly turned us all off to the political system, made us hate it, made us cynical about it. And this was part of Obama's extraordinary um, uh, gift and insight uh, was that the, the use of so-called wedge issues of the social issues, whether it was flag burning or gay marriage or abortion or whatever, had become so effective combined with the technology that allowed the Republican Party, because they were the only ones that had the money to do this for a long, long time, um, to slice and dice the electorate in a way that they could do robo, so-called robocalls, uh, 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 recorded calls and, and targeted mailings on the most minute differences, you know, widowed veterans and uh, you know, six or seven different categories they could target voters and, and sort of hit red buttons and it, and it couldn't be let go of because it worked so well but it had the effect of, of turning, of making turnout just go down, 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 because it was just so unpleasant to hear and listen to and be part of. Um, Obama certainly ran some, some advertisements in this campaign that were not accurate, uh, that were, were deceptive. Um, he was no angel, but he did appeal to our better angels, and he did uh, raise the bar. Uh, in a dramatic way. Uh, and he did change people's expectation of what they would expect to hear from their candidates and of what I believe they will demand to hear. Um, and I think you saw that in, in Senator McCain's um, very gracious concession speech. Um, he, he heard it too. Uh, and, that's, and that was a huge part of this enormous turnout and the enormous turnaround after years of declining turnout. Um, Americans were feeling sort of like you saw the pictures in, in South Africa at the first election there. And, um, and we did have people standing in line for three and four hours because in order to cast a vote because we never had turnout like this. So also we seemed peculiarly unable 
for a country that can go to the moon and do everything else to produce a voting machine that actually works. But, um, uh, and enough of them, but and nonetheless, people did and um, stood in line. Um, fourth, I think this, uh, this election completely rewrote the book on campaigns. And that's a subject for a different night. But um, Obama took the most old-fashioned kind of campaigning, door-to-door, person-to-person, face-to-face, community organizing campaigning. And he married it to the internet. And he produced something brand new. Nobody's ever seen anything like it. And he goes to Washington with a database of seven million people. So he's built a movement. And one of the big unknowns is, how will he use it? And can he use it? Can he control it? Will it stay together? Is it a movement? I don't think anybody knows the answers to any of those questions. But this is, don't doubt at all, this was a revolutionary campaign. This was a revolutionary campaign. It was also the best campaign I've ever seen. And I, I did work in, in two presidential campaigns, and I've never seen anything that comes close um, in just, and it tells you, a, I, I think that also tells you a great deal about what to expect from him. This man, for all you, I don't know whether it came over here or not, the part of the campaign, which was, he has no executive experience. He built a $600 million corporation with 12,000 employees. And he ran it flawlessly. Um, uh, and in a way that we've, we've never seen. Um, and we've also never had a first time campaigner in recent decades. Who, I mean, we sort of expect that you have to run once and fail before you can run and win, unless you happen to get lucky like Bill Clinton did with a third party candidate to take away the vote. Remember, Bill Clinton got elected with 43% of the vote. Obama got elected with 53% of the vote. There is a Jordan River of difference between that two, because he comes in with a Congress that is looking up to him instead of a Congress that's looking down to him. Uh, and, and that's a world of difference. The one thing that I think it is not, that you might expect it um, to have been, is I don't think we have just had a return to traditional liberalism. Um, there was a lot of talk in the campaign that, uh, from the Republicans that Obama was the most, most liberal senator in the United States Senate. This comes from one of these um, uh, vote counting operations. Um, uh, it was taken in a year. It means nothing. I, if anybody wants to know more detail than that, um, I, I'd, I'd be happy to explain it in the, in the Q&A. It means nothing. This is a man who, whose most profound instincts are centrist. Um, he was, it's, it's very clear when you talk to him, it's very clear from his record in the Illinois State Senate. It's, it's less clear from his, because his time in the United States Senate was so short. But his instincts, his whole reason for running, are indeed centrist. So I don't think um, uh, it is going to be that. However, as I said, he's going to be under enormous pressure uh, from Democrats who've been out of power and unable to, to execute an agenda for s decades um, uh, to do that. And whether he can withstand it, I don't know. Um, 
So let's turn a little bit to the inbox. And, and I mean, the first thing to say about the inbox is it's without any question or even any close competition, the worst inbox that any president has faced since the early 1950s. I think Harry Truman faced the worst one, probably. Um, and, and, and Roosevelt did, and Lincoln did. Uh, but even from that list, you get a sense of, of uh, what neighborhood it's in. It is awful. Um, without question, the first issue is the financial crisis. And there, I think there are two tracks that he, that he will have to follow. Um, one is to deal with the day-to-day -day reaction to and attempt to alleviate uh, what will be a deepening recession and that all the news will be bad as, first I think there are still some bombs to go off in the financial world, not, not every bad thing that has happened, that is gonna happen has happened yet, with the hedge funds and others. Um, so that requires, is gonna require enormous, it could suck up all the energy out of uh, the administration, but at the same time, um, we have to address, and I believe the administration intends to, um, redesigning the, the first the national and then the international regulatory, financial regulatory system. This was the first crisis of globalization, and it has to be seen as that. Everything that we thought about globalization that was positive it now appears in a different light because this was clearly global crisis of globalization. We are clearly miles behind in terms of understanding what's going on or, or dealing with it, the realities on the ground. So they have to go on a two-track process, redesign the system, deal with the crisis at the same time. It's been done before. Our political system actually works best in crisis. Maybe all political systems do. But ours definitely does, so that's that's a little bit of, of a positive, of a positive uh, aspect to it. But he also has to produce his first budget in February, so really uh, uh, 17 days after he's inaugurated, he has to have a federal budget, which is like this. Um, uh, the Bush administration is not going to produce a first draft of the budget. Uh, so there are probably people right now attempting to do this against the baseline which is deteriorating daily. Uh, so in some ways this first budget is um, an extraordinary test of the capacity of, of the administration. Um, and the, um, and we'll come back to this, but this, on this issue of trying first to rethink what we need in terms of financial regulation on a national basis, it is, it, you can only do the first step nationally, the, and the second step has to be with Europe and then with the broader uh, circle of countries because obviously, you know, the UBS headquarters is this big in, in Switzerland and it's that big in New York. I mean, it, it, this is not something you can even begin to think about on a national basis. And so the, one of the first connections between U.S. and, and Europe is going to be uh, right away on this issue. Um, next in the inbox, Iraq, obviously. 
I actually think Iraq, it's, it's, it's sort of, uh, it's a bit clearer than we, than we thought it, it was. There is a broad consensus that it is time to get out. It's pretty clear that there is, whether it's Iranian um, manipulated or not, there is a pretty clear evidence that they are not prepared to sign what we call a SOFA agreement, a status of forces agreement, an agreement that would legalize the U.S. presence there after the UN mandate roll, uh, runs out, which is at the end of this year. So that's a deadline. And the Bush administration had set itself a July 1st deadline to finish the SOFA. They got, and it's been a mess. And they can't get it, they can't get it passed. They believe or they charge that the Iranians are paying people to oppose it in parliament. Um, uh, the question of wh where the Bush administration leaves that issue is obviously one of the, f of the first challenges um, Obama faces. But setting the U.S. On, a, on an extrication course is not such a hard thing. There is a general consensus in that direction. What's going to be the first big test is when violence flares, which I think it will. This is a really fragile success so far. And as we pull out, I think, whether it's in Kirkuk or somewhere else, it's going to get worse. And then the question will be, do you stop withdrawing? Do you change policy? Do you stay? That's the test, not starting. Um, the next issue uh, in the inbox is Afghanistan, uh, where we have a war who's, that is going into a tailspin and that is w and, and where the crisis is far worse than it's been recognized. And Obama has, has raised the bar very high there during the campaign. I think for political reasons, I, I hope, because my gut tells me that history tells you that this is not going to have a happy ending. But that's not where he's set himself up for. And, and uh, I don't want to take too long with this. And, and so I will just sort of flag that. We need a new strategy. I don't think Europe is going to produce the, the additional troops that the US feels it should. So there is going to be a tension there. Um, uh, will Europe, what will Europe produce instead um, in Afghanistan? Um, now the, the next issue, and this one I think is, is in some ways one of the, uh, the toughest, which is Pakistan. Pakistan is, you know what they say about banks now, and the US is constantly, we're hearing, it's too big to fail. Pakistan is too dangerous to fail. But it's failing, or it, it's, it's kind of on that pathway. Um, and it is the reason we can't win in Afghanistan. We cannot fight a war, we cannot win a war with a sanctuary across the border. We couldn't do it in Korea, we couldn't do it in Vietnam, we can't do it in Pakistan. And that's exactly what's happening now. Every every uh, um, interaction between U.S. forces and uh, Al-Qaeda, Taliban forces ends when they run across the border and we can't follow. And um, uh, it, it, we can't go on that way. And there's a big question of how much of a Western presence, whether it's European, American or European or both, how much of a, of a Western presence can the Pakistani political system withstand without collapsing? That's a really tough question. We don't have a Pakistan policy worth the name. And I think devising one that has some prayer of working is, is one of, of President Obama's 
uh, biggest um, challenges and one in which um, uh, the US-European agenda is really very deeply engaged. And one, I should add, that I think is of immense importance to this country um, for reasons of the do domestic politics. The next issue, and it was certainly highlighted yesterday by, by President Medvedev's speech, is to rebuild the US-Russian relationship, which is nothing right now. Um, uh, if for no other reason, then Russia is key to a deal on Iran, to success on Iran. Um, but right now, um, that's going to take some very serious negotiating. And it's going to take a massive shift in a policy that the United States has followed for at least 12 years, which is uh, an implicit belief or a statement that Russia has no legitimate interests on its borders. That so long as these country, countries become democratic, why should they care? Even if there happens to be an American base, military base. Um, countries, major powers, always care, always have legitimate interests on their borders. And it's one of the major issues that we have made over the last major mistakes, 12 years. I'm not saying eight by mistake, I mean at least 12, in pretending that Russia is no longer there. Doesn't matter. And um, uh, a series of insults have added up, have come home to roost. And we are reaping a harvest that we sowed, starting with the unilateral renunciation of the ABM Treaty, including Kosovo, including missile defense in Poland and Czechoslovakia, including extending NATO, breaking up three promises to the Russians about that we wouldn't move beyond West Germany, that we wouldn't move beyond East Germany, that we wouldn't move. This was a problem that started right at the end of the Cold War, and it's now come exactly home to roost, which is you knew there was no way to stop it till you got to Ukraine, which means the Russian border, and um, that's chaos. So we have to start, we have to sit down with the Russians and rebuild a relationship which is right now in smithereens. And at the core of that is going to be trying to talk about what, do you, what are your interests in the region, what are our interests in the region, and how are we going to work those out. And then we're going to have to try, once we have some, some basis for talking, um, we're going to have to do a deal to get them their help on Iran. They are deeply ambivalent about Iran. They don't want an Iranian nuclear-armed Iran, but they would love to see us carry the water, and they would love to see us fail, or at least get hurt, stub our toe worse. Um, and so they're terribly torn. Um, and we're not going to get their active cooperation without giving something significant. And my own view, if I were in the government, would be we give the missile defense installations in Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic and Poland, which didn't make any sense to begin with. Um, but it's going to be something on that order, I think. We can't succeed in Iran till we are in a position, the US, Europe, Russia, to apply tough sanctions. And I said those three because China will follow, I believe, if we can get US, Russia, and Europe. China does not like to be the thumb that sticks up. Um, and then finally, of course, Iran. Uh, 
he has to wait until the Iranian, he can only do sort of very quiet subterranean um, uh, laying the groundwork uh, for some sort of talks between now and June, which are the Iranian presidential elections. The last thing we can afford to do is to do anything to empower inadvertently Ahmadinejad in those elections. So the good news, so the tough part is, or the good news is Europe is finally going to have an active partner in this effort. The bad news is Europe is finally going to get asked to do something it doesn't want to do, which is sanctions that really bite economically here, which is probably going to mean sanctions on refined oil products. That's what really is going to hurt in Iran, although tougher sanctions even on unrefined oil will hurt too, but refined product will really hurt, and that's going to hurt Germany and other European countries badly. Um, uh, this this, and this is a general piece of good news for Obama. Russia and Iran and other countries are very, very, very different creatures with $60 barrel oil or $70 barrel oil than they were eight months ago at $147 barrel oil. Very different. So hopefully he can meld the political calendar and the oil price calendar so that he can act against Iran while and, and act to try to rebuild the Russian relationship while oil prices stay low because of the recession. There's lots more on my list, but I don't want to take too much, I don't want to take other people's time. Um, uh, let me just sort of touch on things we can come back to. He's got deadlines on climate and nonproliferation, big major international conferences that happen either in the spring of this, of 09 or the fall in the case of climate. It's going to be very hard to have anything to bring to the table in terms of enacted, legislated, new American policy. It may be impossible. With the single exception, possibly, of, uh, and this would be huge, um, U.S. ratification of the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, which the Bush administration killed after the U.S. had pushed it for 19 years. Um, that begins to turn around the whole international nuclear situation. Whether he can do it in this first year, I don't know, but if he can, it will be it's something to watch. Um, debates that I think we don't know about, um, will this be a protectionist administration? Are we going to see a trade policy that's a reversal of the, of the policies of the last few years? Will the recession force you know, reinforce what is already a democratic impulse towards protectionism? I don't know. I think there will be a huge debate internally in the administration over Georgia and Ukraine, uh, whether and how to shelve the decision to move them towards, re rapidly towards NATO membership. Um, those are, um, and the whole question of what role democracy promotion plays, I think those, depending on who he appoints, that those are still open debates within the in the, within the administration. So let me stop there. Um, I've tried to give you a few of, of the highlights, but as I said, this is a uniquely awful inbox. And so one of the, and one of the big tests um, uh, of whether he is a great president, or at least has the medal to be a great president, will be whether he can um, pick uh, priorities out of that. Because the weakness of all democratic administrations is always wanting to do too much. Um, every democratic administration 
you know, that, that, that's its sort of, those are its principal characteristics. And, um, and when you've got solid majorities in both houses of Congress, the temptation is even greater. So um, the question of how he, how narrowly he, he can focus um, among these enormous number of questions um, will, I think, give you a, a good sense of, of, uh, of how great this man is. I do believe, um, I was saying upstairs before we came down, uh, this election is certainly the biggest political event of my lifetime, um, and certainly since the 1960s in the United States. Uh, and I think this is a once-in-a-generation political talent. Um, and we'll see. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jessica, for that. Um, the one word that has been used so frequently about this election is historic, so I won't use it. Um, but one, one word that has not been used about it is surprising. Um, and I think in some, some sense this election is, is surprising in some really quite remarkable ways. The first and most remarkable way, of course, is that uh, the experts predicted it and got it right. As you know, the experts have a long history uh, not me, but many, um, of kind of predicting the future and getting it wrong. As you remember, in many previous elections, the polls have told us one thing. In the end, the American voters have done something entirely irrational and done the opposite. Well, this time, the only thing we can say is the polls got it right. The experts predicted it. I was in Italy a couple of weeks, alone, uh, a couple of weeks ago and predicted it, and then walked off stage thinking, I wish I hadn't said that. Barack Obama will win it. Well, he did, so we got it right. So well done, the experts, at least this once. I think the other very surprising thing about this election is uh, uh, Barack Obama is equally popular inside the United States and outside of it. This is, a, again, a quite remarkable development. As you know, the more popular one is outside of anyone's country, the more unpopular you're becoming inside of it. In fact, we've almost had an Obama mania, not only inside the United States, but also outside of it. Um, a BBC poll, which of course is again uh, bound to be true, um, showed that if Obama had stood in about 37 countries in the world, he would have won that election as well. Uh, indeed, in Kenya, uh, according to the BBC, he would have had a 92% majority. So, um, historic again is a word that has been used too frequently, maybe uh, in regards to this election, for all the obvious reasons. Uh, that I won't go over because it's, it's, it's far too obvious to make the point. But surprising is another one. The, the big question, of course, is why he won. Again, somebody went around many, many conferences before being asked uh, the, the usual questions, can he win, can a black man win? Uh, and that was really one of the questions which was posed time and time again. I think in the end, when we look back on this election, actually, probably John McCain's age told more against him than did uh, Obama's skin color. In fact, probably anything is now going to be demonstrated, the fact that Obama was black may indeed have helped him in, in many important respects. And this again goes back to some of the things I think that Jessica was saying about the, the huge demographic shifts that have occurred in the United States over the last 40 years. Uh, it isn't just, by the way, that only black people in vast majorities voted for Barack Obama. Hispanics, whom we were told were Catholic, they wanted the values issues, abortion, they're against gay marriage. Hispanics voted for 
for Barack Obama, something in the, in, in the region of the 75 to 76%. We were also told that only kind of people with BAs, MAs, and indeed PhDs would vote for Barack Obama. In other words, the people who could read and write. In other words, the middle class. They were the only people who would vote. In fact, if you look at the statistics, actually blue-collar white, white working class voters across the United States voted for Barack Obama in huge numbers, in, in absolutely huge numbers. And of course, he could never have got elected unless Joe or Josephine Sixpack uh, had, not, um, had not voted for him in very large numbers. Of course, there's other demographics in this which are uh, very interesting, the, the importance of youth. In this, the 18 to 30-year-old ranges voted overwhelmingly. Again, for those who are political scientists, and I don't claim to be one, but nonetheless, the political scientists will have a field day with this, looking at how the 18 to 30-year-olds 30 in this election voted as compared to 2004 and, uh, and, and 2000. Uh, and, and so one can go through the various stats on this. Whether we call it a landslide or not, I don't know. It is, it, it, it's close to being one, 52, 53% of the vote, large, large turnout. Many of the states which were originally uh, a certain kind of color are now a different uh, kind of color. Why did he win? Well, all the factors have been, been, fact, have been discussed. Money. Uh, I, I can understand why Barack Obama didn't want federal, federal control over the spending in this election. That was probably the best decision he made very early in the campaign. Uh, having promised he said he would do it, he of course then decided not to. And, and, I, and if you look at the statistics now, you'll know why. He spent nearly twice as much as the Republicans in this election, about $640 billion, to poor old John McCain's 335. I'd never thought I'd stand on a platform and say the poor old Republicans, but there you are. The Democrats spent nearly twice as much, and it began with small donations and then expanded outwards. But only 640 million, not billion. Oh, did I say billion? Well, I meant million. Yes, indeed. Well, what's a thousand million? What's a thousand million between 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 Anglo-Americans? You know, what I mean, what's the difference? <laughs> We've been putting so much money into the banking system over the last few weeks. I've lost the difference between millions and billions. I can show you. But thank you for that empirical uh, verification of my inability to do mathematics. Um, uh, secondly, of course, what the election demonstrates, apart from the power of money, if you go into an election, please go into an election with candidates um, whom, whom, whom are liked by one's own party. It's quite clear that uh, McCain was not liked by his own party. He then took a very risky, uh, risky strategic move uh, to, to appoint Sarah Palin as his, uh, his vice presidential uh, candidate. Uh, she was either identified as being too inexperienced, too right-wing, or lacking in knowledge of the world or what was the capital of France. Um, but nonetheless, clearly, one saw a very divided Republican Party uh, between two candidates who were ideologically miles apart from one another. And again, I think that's told very clearly against the Republicans. It's the oldest political, political cliche in the world. If you go into an election, go in with a united party and with a united platform. As, a, as I think uh, Jessica has also said, a, a, an extraordinary or organization, almost Bolshevik in its, in its capacities, of bringing out the vote, uh, professionalism, and, and all that, and made no mistakes along the line. An election could have been turned by the false word, the, the, wrong, the wrong movement at certain points has nearly happened, but it never did throughout the whole of the election. Technology, the use of the internet, played a critical part in all this. The demographics in the long term have played an enormous part in all this. We, we can go into deeper analysis. One can almost say that this election, too, is the 
is the final outcome of the civil rights legislation of the 1960s. Uh, that, that, I think, again, is pretty obvious. In, in some long historical term, the civil rights acts of the 64 and after have, in a sense, come home to roost in, in 2008. I think also the message that Barack Obama put out was one of hope and change, to use the cliché. There was also, let us not forget, the Bush factor. Uh, President Bush, whatever one wants to say about him or against him or for him, and there are very few people who want to say anything for him, particularly Republicans, it seems, these days. You know, it's almost like that British joke about the Second World War. Please don't mention the war. Well, this was a bit like Bush. Please don't mention the president. Um, it was really quite embarrassing. Please do not come to my party. Who is this man beside you? Well, that's the president of the United States. Really? Um, the Bush factor clearly played against the Republicans in, in this particular election, and I think it was a massive problem. Moreover, what has not been mentioned, this is Iraq. I, I think at the, at the back of this, although I think if you look at what people have said, what, why did they vote in the way in which they voted, what were the key issues, and clearly it was the economy, healthcare, the fundamental kind of social economic issues. Very little mention about the war on terror, and there's very little discussion of national security. At the heart of this, too, the unmentionable in the room, if you like, was Iraq. This, is, in a sense, had bled, I think, uh, popular support for the Republicans. And I think the very fact that Barack Obama had taken his view on the Iraq war that he did clearly helped. And I think, finally, I think as all of us would recognize it, Frankly, the Democrats came up for the first time in many years with a world-class candidate, with a world-class candidate who was a brilliant speaker, a wonderful human being, and clearly able to articulate the needs of the time with a, a large enough number of, of people. However, whenever one goes through all these particular factors, until the early part of September, the inadequacies of the Republicans, uh, all the problems that were being faced because of Bush or Iraq, Whatever one has to say about the capacities of Barack as a candidate, the reality is that in the early part of September, the two parties were neck and neck. Every poll you look at in about late August, early September, they really do show something like that. It was too close to call. As Rob and I were in a, at a conference here, uh, really about the second week of September, and nobody really wanted to call the election in the early part of September. And clearly in this, in this regard, although all these other factors clearly play a, a, a critical role, what actually happened since September, this enormous financial crisis, which suddenly has smacked the whole world and the American people in the face, I think was absolutely, absolutely vital. It is the economy stupid, but in this case it is more than just the economy stupid, it is the world economic crisis stupid. And I think that has been critical really in bringing about this opening up of the gap and then this final, this, final, uh, this final victory for Barack Obama and the Democrats. For the obvious reasons, and I'll just mention two. One, you know, the Republican message since Ronald Reagan, and again, the point was made very well by Jessica, this is the end of the Reagan era. You might almost say it's the end of the Thatcher era. You know, government is the enemy. Government is the problem. That was the Republican message. That was the liberal economic message. That was the message pushed by what I call the Anglo-American economic elite for the last 20 years. Well, who's going to take that message seriously when the first thing you do need now is more government, more regulation, more intervention, and more state? And I think clearly in this respect, the, the Republican message, I think, was clearly offline and that of the Democrats more on, on message. I think the second thing I'd say is clearly is this. If you look at the 2004 election, 
One of the reasons why Bush was able to do that, apart from playing on the, on the question of... Uh, that's very nice music, by the way. Thank I'm you. sorry. Isn't that embarrassing? We should have said at the beginning, please turn off all your, uh, your cell phones. But, but we forgot to say that to the speakers. Um, but clearly in the 2004 election, what, what turned it was values. You know, there were many aspects of the 2004 election, but I think it was national security and values. Which brought, which brought Bush victory in 2004. And both of those were driven off the agenda in 2008. Nobody wanted to talk about values. Nobody wanted, who's going to talk about values and all sorts of stuff like that when, in fact, one is sort of facing the melt, meltdown itself? And national security was also pushed off the agenda. Economics pushed everything off the agenda and therefore made the two key issues for the Republicans impossible to exploit in this particular election. To conclude very quickly, the very same economic crisis, which has effectively, I think, almost shot Barack Obama into the White House and brought the Democrats this huge victory, the very thing which has brought success is the very great danger facing the Democrats and the United States now. It is quite clear. I thought it was hugely significant that in the very week that Barack Obama won this magnificent victory uh, it, with this magnificent voice of his and this terrific ability to articulate in many ways fears and, and aspirations and hopes, not just for the American people, for the people of the world. And this was not just an American election, this was a world election, this was a global event. In the same week, Wall Street dropped 10%. And I think that tells us something very significant about many of the problems that uh, Barack Obama and, and uh, his vice president and, 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 the, and the Democrats are, are going to face. And I think more than anything else, this is going to be the one number one issue which is going to shape in the first year, probably more, this particular, this particular candidate and this particular White House. Uh, what I think it will do, there will certainly be messages within Congress calling for protection of American jobs. But I think if the economic crisis has revealed anything, um, it is that, frankly, the United States could clearly not solve any of these problems by itself. The sheer economic issues which are so interconnected and so intertwined. And here globalization does play a very real role. But as one saw, immediately the US, President Bush, although not, not in a terribly effective way, had to turn to the Europeans. He has to turn to the Chinese. He has to turn to his economic partners. You know, for once, I think unilateralism not only is not only a bad choice, it's irrelevant in this, in this particular current uh, situation. Uh, I think Obama's honeymoon is going to be real. Obama himself is the message. I'm not sure he's got many clearly articulated policies. If I go down the, the series of things he's got, there aren't many articulated clear policies here. In some ways he is the message. It is the message of hope. And I think frankly in speaking personally, and I've been speaking personally now for too long and so I'll shut up, the reality is that he is the message and I'm, I, I'm frankly very, very very, very thankful that it's him in the White House at the current moment. Because I think we do need, in this very critical moment, I think, as Jessica said, we need someone with that kind of vision. The problems he faces will be immense, but I'm certainly very glad myself that the person sitting in the White House for the next four years at least will be Barack Obama and not somebody else. Thank you very much indeed. Let me rain on the parade a bit. Yeah, uh, it's a dirty job, but someone has to do it. Um, it strikes me that this is a historic 
moment and that if, if you were awake in the early hours of Tuesday morning and you heard Obama's speech, if you weren't moved by that, then you need to check yourself for a pulse. <laughs> At the same time, it's a fairly regular event in politics whereby um, I think the WHO put it best in 1968 in Won't Get Fooled Again when they said, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Now, if there's a moment when that doesn't seem to apply, it seems right now. But I want to throw some reasons out why we should be cautious about being too premature, about prognosticating on a democratic realignment, generational change, and a president who will make the, the rise of the seas stop, who will suddenly make moose, make peace with Sarah Palin. Dogs will finally pay respect to cats. And if he doesn't do so, he'll be a failure. I think one of the interesting things, as Mick suggested, is that in contrast to 1980, Reagan was the head of a movement, a genuine political movement that had genuine beliefs. And he had been that, really, for the best part of 16 years. Obama is the message. Obama not only speaks for change, he personifies the change. He is the change. But the question is, what change? Is he the cautious, conservative, pragmatic, calm, temperamental, bipartisan, postpartisan person that his rather greeting card simplicity style speeches suggest? We are neither a red state nor a blue state. We can bring everyone together. If the world stands as one as they did in the Cold War, there is nothing we can't achieve, apart from the fact that the world didn't stand as one in the Cold War. It was rather divided into two or more. Is he that cautious, pragmatic, calm, temperamental individual? Or is he the straight, down the line, orthodox, programmatic, progressive, liberal Democrat who has done virtually nothing ever to buck his party or conventional wisdom? In 2002, his judgment as he put it, rested on the notion that when he was not in the Senate, he opposed the Iraq war. When he was in the Senate in 2006, he also opposed the one measure that ironically has allowed him this year to neutralize the Iraq war and to put himself in pretty much the same ballpark as McCain when it comes to a drawdown in Iraq, namely the surge. Is he the rhetoric and the occasional votes where he was against free trade and arguably the most anti-free trade democratic presidential nominee in a generation? Or is he the guy who said in Fortune magazine in the summer that that primary and caucus rhetoric was overheated? Which is to say how he marries up his clear temperamental pragmatism and his clear instinctive liberalism is an unresolved question. You don't know it, I don't know it, and maybe neither does he. And that's significant, I think, also, because when it comes to the politics, not of the campaign, but of governing, what he's going to face are some really difficult questions. Trade now accounts for 23% of the American economy, compared to 15% in 1990, which means that the United States cannot, as Mick suggested, it cannot withdraw from the world. It is interdependent, at least at an economic level amongst others.
But at the same time, Americans, if public opinion surveys are to be believed, are withdrawing on that basis from the world. They're turning inwards. And his party, which has large majorities now in Congress, not filibuster-proof in the Senate, but almost there, is, is very, very strongly anti-free trade. Unlike the period when even Clinton, let alone Carter, was in office with his own party in control of both houses of Congress, you don't have in charge of the major committees the old-style conservative, moderate Democrats. You have a much more uniformly progressive party. And one of the central stories then, of two central stories, I think, that will play out in deciding whether we are in the process of a genuine realignment, a lasting realignment that favors the Democrats, well, there are two. One is how Obama deals with the inevitable pressures that have accompanied every Democratic president from a Democratic Congress to go further and faster. And I don't think we have any idea whether he will do that. Take trade, for example. It seems obvious, at least to some of us, that the best mechanism for taking millions out of poverty around the world is the reduction of tariff barriers, the end of subsidies like the common agricultural policy, farm subsidies in the states, re-embracing the Doha round, making more bilateral trade agreements. And yet, election year politics this year have stalled Colombia, uh, Panama, South Korea. Is Obama really want to squander what precious political capital he has on forcing difficult trade votes for Congress over the next two years, given that he needs his party to be together, they need in their own self-interest to be together, and the usual dynamics of American election campaigns haven't disappeared, which is to say Obama is not going to be conducting his administration over the next four years with a view to a one-term mandate. He's going to be looking to running for a second term in 2012. And though he may portray himself as a global citizen, as we've seen this week to relief, we don't have a vote in 2012. Americans do. But Democrats in Congress will face a vote in 2010. And they are going to face a base which, contrary to his proclamations of post-partisanship, if you noticed in his speech on uh, Wednesday morning, um, when he started talking about, we need to govern with the other party. The other party is the tradition of individual rights, of nationhood. There was virtually silence in Chicago. And when you looked behind the eyes of Democrats, there was a good reason for that. Their logic was, no, we don't. We've got the numbers, and it's payback time. We are going to enact the kind of progressive measures which we really believe in. MoveOn.org, we really believe in it. Uh, the teachers' unions, we really believe in it. No, we're not going to go for education reform. Thank you, Mr. President. Environmentalist groups who aren't willing to put combating climate change off because of the financial crisis for a couple of years because that threat to them is far more serious. And never mind the fact about financial bombs going off. What if real bombs go off again? What if Obama goes, not never mind NATO, who aren't going to stump up for Afghanistan or Germans start, start allowing their, their uh, 
aircraft to finally start flying at night again in Afghanistan, never mind European allies in NATO. Already, Barney Frank uh, and David Obey, who's going to be chairman of the Appropriations Committee, have called for drastic reductions in the defense budget to fund domestic programs. How is Obama proposing then to deal with Afghanistan and Pakistan? His commitment is 1.5 billion in non-military aid to Pakistan, 1 billion to Afghanistan, and tripling aid in terms of aid to infrastructure, to health, to housing, and to education in Pakistan. How's that gonna go down with the democratic base at this particular point in time? And what's he gonna trade in then? So a central story, it seems to me, is gonna be how does he cope? How does he cope with his party and with, let's be honest, the unrealistic expectations which have not only been placed upon him by commentators, but which he himself has raised. He has run not so much for commander-in-chief, but cosmopolitan-in-chief, <laughs> for global citizen number one. And it's rather ironic that we see around the world now two phenomena. Firstly, we see many American academics who for years have said, no, we're not exceptional. We're just like everybody else. Endorse the notion that only in America. And at the same time, we've seen, I saw it on TV last night, a number of, of, uh, of uh, people of color in outside America saying, what this shows, what my kids are telling me, is that their family, that, that family that's gonna be in the White House from January is just like us, and it shows that we can accomplish anything. Well, actually, no, you can't. Not yes, we can, because you're not in America. And the day that we see anybody in a senior position in British government, and let's take for granted we've already seen Colin Powell, Condi Rice, in positions which are unheard of in this country and most of Europe and much of the world is still far, far away. The second story, however, which, and I'll give you some hope on this, I'll be generous for once because I'm a friend of Mick. So. The second story, however, is that you may, get, you may get a democratic generational advantage for a simple reason by default, and that is the implosion of the Republican Party, which is to say that I think we are in for an almighty fight for the heart and soul of the Republican Party, and indeed a fight in which the almighty figures highly which is to say the battle is likely to be between those whose basic attitude to life is what would Jesus do and those whose attitude to the Republican Party from those who are secular and have only been born once <laughs> is what would Reagan do. And I think if the Republican Party goes down a Palin-esque route, if we end up with the major contenders for the 2012 nomination being Palin, Huckabee, Romney, and God knows literally who else, then basing your party on rural white conservative voters in the South and the Midwest is going to condemn you to oblivion for a generation. So I think pronouncements of a realignment are premature and everything is to play for, but I wouldn't underestimate for a moment and I wouldn't get too euphoric at the moment and replace wish fulfillment for reality. In a sense, I think the best advice
that I could possibly offer, and I try to here and don't do it as often as I should, is to say, you know, when we're thinking about Obama, maybe the best way to think about Obama is Obama-esque. Be like him. Cool, calm, collected, looking at the facts, knowing what you believe in, but making the judgment according to the world as it is, not just the world as you might want it to be. Thank you. Okay, well, we have a fair spectrum of uh, views uh, over here. So um, let me just throw this open to the, uh, to the floor. Yes. And if you could possibly... Where are the mi microphones? Yeah, there are microphones. Oh, they're yes. not working. There's one microphone. Oh, that's well, good. getting rich. Yes. Is, the mi is that microphone working? Yes? Okay, there's uh, one... Is this for me or you? No. Here, and then you next. But if you could identify who you are at the same time, that would be helpful for the speaker. Um, I'm Paul Friedman. Um, we heard a, a bit of a, a laundry list of, of Obama's uh, inbox and with a, uh, elect, a debate called Where Now for the United States After the Election. If this was being held in the United States, I think people would be astonished that health care didn't get included in that. So I, I guess I asked the panel, um, uh, where does health care fit okay. into that, or has the more recent events pushed that uh, off the agenda? Mm. We'll, we'll take two questions together, so if you'd like to. Uh, the name is Ranjiv Gunawardner. The question is, uh, my observation here, and I would like some ideas from yourself, this uh, issue about Iran, this was created by this factor of a problem by the Bush administration should Obama take the same stance as, uh, as Bush has done? So my, my, my thoughts on this is that uh, India acquired the nuclear arms. Pakistan also acquired that. And before, people were saying, don't do that because X, Y, Z. But nothing's happened to date. So with Iran, I just want to know why is it so anti? Why all the parties are thinking aligned the same thinking in terms of Iran. Okay, since the microphone's in the set, we just have a third last question here. Yeah, just. Um, may I just uh, thank Rob Singh and Jessica Matthews very much indeed for bringing us down to earth with a very welcome well, bump. I'm sorry I took you off. <laughs> 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 oh, you're a minor treasure, you don't you need to do right. uh, <clears throat> And an end to the tsunami of gush we've been subjected to in the media. Um, isn't the first con point of conflict with Europe really going to be on, on his protectionist position, particularly as the government here has expressed concern today, and in fact called for an acceleration of the Doha round talks before inauguration day, that's first step. Second thing is, isn't he like, couldn't he very well be a victim of his own or oratory in promising too much? Universal health care, lower taxes for 95% of families, increased spending on infrastructure. I mean, that would be a tall order at the best of times, and this is the worst of times. And finally, on uh, I think the whole area of Afghanistan troubles me immensely. I see it as another Vietnam. Pakistan is a failed state. The borders are totally porous. He's even more hawkish than McCain and threatening to bomb with zero stand. Okay, thank you very much, Jesse. Well, on, on health care, the reason I didn't mention it was because I was asked to sort of talk about the international scene. Um, but, the, uh, but it's also fair to say um, we've been working on health care in the United States for 55 years. 
and we haven't gotten there yet. Um, and there are, uh, I think, action forcing events on these other issues, and um, something will start on healthcare reform, but um, it's going to be, I, I wouldn't hold your breath. Um, on the question of why is it so awful if Iran goes nuclear, the answer is, is several fold. Um, the first is that proliferation never happens one country at a time. Um, it happened, India went nuclear because of China, Pakistan went nuclear because of India. They always happen in clumps. This particular location raises the prospect of Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Egypt, etc. And it's not a pretty picture. Also, we've had Iraq and North Korea having used the cover of the NPT to go nuclear covertly. If a th we have, you could argue that they taught us the lesson, if a third country does it, the NPT is a piece of paper and nothing more. And the NPT is the centerpiece of the global nuclear regime. And thirdly, um, uh, well, third and fourth. Third is, I wouldn't call what's happened in South Asia not so bad, particularly the prospect of a, of a, of a uh, Pakistan without a stable government. It, I don't sleep well uh, with a, a, a nuclear-armed Pakistan that doesn't have a stable government. Um, and, and fourthly, the, the character of a government is, is uh, determines how others think of it. And this is not a government that you can feel, I think, particularly comfortable um, uh, with, with nuclear weapons. They already are bent on dominating the region. And with nuclear weapons, whether they use them or not, or even whether they test them or not, they have a great, much, great deal more power. So I think there is an enormous case of why one should be exercised about Iran becoming nuclear. Um, I don't think trade will be the first area of, uh, of conflict with Europe. I think Afghanistan will be. And um, uh, I think it will be, uh, I think, um, that Obama's anti-trade rhetoric in Ohio had to do with Ohio. And this guy is a tough politician. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's no, he's no you know, uh, um, he, he did what I think he felt he had to do there. Um, I haven't seen any sign of, of you know, protectionist impulse in him, but real, I mean, uh, um, one hopes that Doha will get resurrected, but between now, between when that happens and when it gets completed is several years away at best. So my guess is there will be all kinds of struggles between the U.S. and Europe between now and then. Yeah, just um, picking up very, two very quick points. I mean, it seemed to me that Jessica posed the problem about Iran, but then didn't take the next step and said, well, what do you do about it? And that's where I think the real issue, I mean, no, nobody presumably except the Iranians want nuclear weapons. Um, I kind of take that as a given, uh, that they want them, but nobody else does. The question is, how do you stop them from developing and in, in the end acquiring them from, from getting them? Now, the reason why, obviously, most people don't want them to, to get them is the nature of the Iranian regime and, the, and, and particularly in the case of the United States, a 30-year Cold War effectively between Iran and the United States. Now, you may want to blame one side or the other. I, I couldn't be bothered about that, but 
you simply have this long Cold War. And I mean, in that context, with President Ahmadinejad uh, leading Iran, one does get slightly worried. Now, um, the question is, what to do about it? And actually, we don't know. We just don't know. I mean, first of all, the United States has handed the, the issue over to the Europeans, so the Europeans talk to them. And then they send in the IAEA and, uh, and Baradai, and uh, they keep talking, and that's very nice. And then they send in the Europeans again, and that's extremely nice. And then they say, well, let's have some sanctions. And then the Russians and Chinese say, uh, no. And so we can't have sanctions, which, of course, then brings you to the question of military options. And, of course, once you start looking at the military options, they're horrible. They're absolutely horrible, uh, not only for the consequence it will have upon Iran, uh, but also on the stability of the region, settlement of Iraq, settlement of Afghanistan. You're not going to get a settlement in the West Bank. You're not going to get a settlement in Gaza. You're not going to get a settlement in, uh, in southern Lebanon, etc., etc., etc. The Iranians are on a roll. They are on a roll, partly conditioned by oil prices, but also conditioned by the war against Iraq, which has opened up space for Iran in the region. Now, so therefore, what do we do? Or what does the United States do? Well, it has two options. Uh, one is to allow Israel to do it, and maybe Rob would want to say something about that because we've discussed this issue before. Not do it itself because the consequences of doing so are so horrendous. Or, thirdly, come to terms with the fact that Iran will one day acquire nuclear weapons. Now, if that is a long-term strategic likelihood, which I think it is, given all the other options are off the table and are impossible, then that simply must open up what I would call the Nixon option towards Iran which will mean a grand bargain. Now, how, how any American president is going to sell the grand bargain on Iran when Ahmadinejad is running uh, Iran, and given what he said about Israel, I mean, is, 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 is very, very difficult. But I do think that will come at some point. And maybe one of the big issues he will face will be that Nixon question about Iran. I mean, a new election in Iraq, in Iran, could open up that, that, that kind of possible. On, on the question of Europe, very quickly, I agree what was said. I think the other big difference, by the way, on the, on the United States and Europe will be on Russia. Uh, I just feel there's a, an entirely different way of thinking about the Russian question. I mean, basically the European Union wants a long-term agreement. It sees Russia ultimately as a partner, uh, and I think that is, that is where it wants to move. This is particularly important, of course, given the degree of oil and gas dependency, at least of certain countries, not, not all, particularly Germany. And I think this is also going to be another area of certain differences which we're going to see. I think we will live in a honeymoon period in the EU-US relationship for a period, but I do think we've got some, we've got some things coming towards us. Rob? Yeah, I'd echo Mick. I mean, it, you know, if you want to get down to Ladbrokes and put, a, put, a, put some money on what's the first issue that ruptures the transatlantic relationship again, well, could be well be Afghanistan, could be protectionism, could be Russia. And a lot of these issues are interdependent. Um, it's quite plausible that an Obama administration, even before January, will want to come to European heads of state and say, in order to make engagement with Iran plausible by Washington, you need to join us with tougher sanctions. And that means tougher commercial sanctions from states like Germany. And that means they're going to say no. Because we, in this period, are not going to compound our economy further. Obama may want to come to Europe and say, in order to rebuild a relationship with Russia bilaterally, we need you on side to be tougher with us. And Europe are going to say, stuff that. We're dependent on energy supplies. And in this particular point in time, that's really serious. And what's interesting about this, I think, and uh, for some of us um, who, who have been persona non grata 
uh, in polite society in, in the UK and academia for more years than I care to remember, but especially over recent years, what's significant is that we're already seeing that actually it wasn't all about Bush. The Iranian situation, as the gentleman suggested, was not created by Bush. We can argue about whether or not it was exacerbated by it, but it was not created. And what is significant about the current moment is not just the hope that Obama is bringing, but also is the revealed reality that his administration and the Democratic Congress will show, which is that there are fundamental differences in viewpoint, in interest, in opinion, and in priorities between Europe and America, whether it be climate change, global warming, trade, the war on terror, uh, democracy promotion in foreign policy, or even the fact and nature of American power itself. And these, I think, are not going to go away, however great it will be to see the return of syntactically correct sentences and grammar to the White House. That's the ultimate challenge. Uh, can we have some... Uh, yes, we're over, uh, over there. Yeah. Take three. We'll take three together. Yes, that's right. Is it on? Thank you very much. Uh, I come from Kenya, and I was interested when you talked of Obama winning an election in Kenya. No problem at all. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's more popular in Nigeria than even in Kenya, but that's not my question. But my question is, you, you have not talked about, either of you has not talked about the Middle East peace process. Yeah. I'm wondering what the fate of the Palestinians and the Israeli deal would be under Obama. And we've seen uh, organizations like IPAC come out very strongly to determine, so to speak, who the next president of the US would be and his agenda. I don't know whether they'll be a little apprehensive that Obama is more liberal and maybe McCain would have been more amenable to the right in both countries. Okay, thank you. Uh, yes, sir, in the middle there. You just pass it along. Uh, thank you for the lectures. Uh, you mentioned the performance of stock market and uh, Obama's victory. I noted that uh, on the exact day of the Obama's victory and to some countries the day after the, his election because of time differences. And the stock market of US and China, including Shanghai Index and Hong Kong and Japan, uh, they all rise significantly. However, the stock market of Europe, including London, uh, fell slightly. How do you think about it? Is it uh, the, maybe the Europeans, as you describe, more cool, calm, Look at the fact. Thank you. <laughs> okay. And up, up there, yes, just in the second row. Um, my name is David Robinson. Um, this is a question for Jessica. It uh, relates to your um, um, your observation that uh, that Obama will be um, extremely effective, simply you know, partly because of his uh, his election campaign being so well run. And my question is: To what extent was um, his, the, the efficacy and the smooth running of his campaign attributable to Obama himself? Does it have his imprints? Or was it, in fact, those two very capable election campaign managers, Plough and Axelrod? 
And what can we okay. what can we expect from the administration? I mean, he's he's appointed a slightly partisan um, chief of staff, and right, right. Um, let me take the, the last one first. Um, campaigns are always a direct reflection of the candidates. I take uh, there are very few general rules in politics. That one is, and um, and in this case, we know from all kinds of reporting that. Um, he was, uh, he was directly involved, hands-on in a day. Let me tell you one, one um, extraordinary story. My um, son was a, a volunteer in the last couple of weeks. Um, he was on a conference call uh, with, with 20,000, I don't even know what this technology is, 20,000 volunteers and paid staff in the seven battleground states on Friday night before the election with Obama for 90 minutes. They were discussing message, strategy, trends in particular counties, right? This guy um, was as deep involved in this as you can <laughs> possibly be down to the level of counties, he knew. But, but I, and I know, I mean, he did weekly conference calls with the paid staff all the way back through the beginning of the primaries. I have never heard of a candidate as deeply involved. But you look at the McCain campaign, he fired his whole staff three times. His whole staff, he went bankrupt once. It was, it, it was as erratic as, I mean, that label fits. Hillary Clinton's campaign looked exactly like the Clinton White House. Exactly. Big egos, nobody with defined areas of responsibility, overlaps, fights, um, uh, very, very poorly run, uh, managed from a, so, but, and there are, one could go back, you know, in, in all kinds of, campaigns do reflect the, 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 the candidate in very, very real ways. Um, the stock market, I think, means absolutely nothing. The volatility in the market, I don't think you were seeing any message of any kind. I mean, the, in, in the old days when markets moved 20 points a day, normally you could get a message. In these days when they move 500 points on no news, uh, I, I don't know what you say about it. Um, uh, on the Middle East, um, here's the big change. Um, the biggest change. The U.S. view under President Bush has been that talking to somebody you don't like legitimates that regime. This is a, prof and, and it has been a, a function of U.S. policy and, uh, you know, with, against Cuba now for 50 years. Um, uh, but it has never been, except for Cuba, uh, a belief of American policy for that. Um, so it really was an exceptional and a deviation from policy. And it has crippled us all over the world because the people you need to talk to are the people you disagree with. Um, uh, that's going to change in the Middle East. Um, uh, so that's one piece of good news. I mean, it's one sort of opening. The other good news, of course, is that Iran cannot cover its external accounts at $70 barrel oil. So if it stays in this neighborhood for any length of time, they are in very severe economic problems. They can't cover their external accounts, meet domestic needs, and funnel money to Hamas and Hezbollah all. They can't even come close. So that, which is one reason why tougher sanctions are, particularly if 
effective if they can be uh, arrived at because they will really bite. Um, uh, the, the oil sanctions, the financial sanctions already have hurt. Um, so that's a piece of good news. The bad news is that we're now in a situation with, with uh, uh, well, the other piece of good news is the, the Israeli-Syrian talks that have been moderated by Turkey that are underway for several months, which are, which is a wonderful news because it is very good news that somebody other than the United States is taking the lead, taking initiative. This is a very good, important piece of news for the world. Um, the bad news is that um, neither Israel nor Palestine has leaders who can negotiate right now. I mean, Israel doesn't even have a leader. Um, I mean, they, they're going into general elections, and if Netanyahu gets elected, I think the prospects of moving forward are, are, are very small. I do think it's, you know, it's the central, it's the central, everything in the Middle East is connected. You pull one thread and everything else connects to it. But um, it can't be done um, if, uh, I, uh, I mean, maybe Netanyahu will sur surprise us all and become, you know, Nixon to China, who knows. Um, but uh, I doubt it. Um, and he may not get elected. But, um, I think the administration will have to wait a bit and focus on taking advantage of a time of weakness for Iran with low oil prices and take a time when, and Syria, I believe Syria, peeling Syria away from Iran is a huge strategic opportunity which we have completely missed. And is, it is, uh, Bashar Assad has is, is been making clear that he would entertain that for a price. So uh, there is that. That's the opportunity. I would go ahead, and that that takes away Iran's only real, only ally in the region. Uh, yeah, I mean, on on <clears throat> what do I say about Israel? I mean, you know, ten years ago I was miserable about it. Uh, Twenty years ago I was even more miserable, and now today I'm even more miserable. I mean, um, it just gets worse and worse and worse. I'm sorry to say, and there are all sorts of reasons for that happening. Um, the reality is, and this is not meant to defense of any American friends in the audience or on the stage, um, I don't think you can have a rational debate about Israel in the United States now. Um, for all sorts of reasons which have been discussed at length. I'm not saying Europeans therefore are the font of all wisdom on this, they're not. Uh, but I do remember a, a colleague of mine from the University of Chicago and uh, from the University of Harvard, uh, John Mearsheimer and Steve Walk, trying to debate their book on the Israel Forum, on Israel and the Israel lobby and American foreign policy, and they said, well, they came to Europe and they got at least a hearing, and it was much more difficult to have that kind of open debate and discussion in the United States. I think, you know, and, and Obama, in a way, has reflected this in, in many respects. Let's be honest about it. I mean, I mean, he's, for good reason, I'm not blaming him. It's, 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 it's the oldest politics in the world to play ethnic politics, to make sure you've got your blocks. Nearly 80% of Jewish votes went to Obama in this. I mean, his chief of staff plays into that very strongly, and I don't blame him. That's the nature of politics. That's the nature of democracy. I just don't think anybody would want to touch the Israel question, to be perfectly honest, and I don't think Obama will. Um, and I think this is going to be just another four years of this, and the reality is that this, this will not be addressed. And the Palestinian situation will simply get worse. The kind of apartheid situation on the West Bank and elsewhere will deteriorate. Uh, we called for we talk we talk about democracy promotion. Well, we promoted democracy, didn't we? In Gaza, the problem is the wrong guys won. 
You know, I lived in Northern Ireland for many years, and they said, well, elections are a wonderful thing as long as provisional IRA members don't win them. Um, and that's the situation with Hamas, which is clearly a mass movement and has support. They had their elections, which are presumably more or less free and fair. And what did we do, including the Europeans, to our shame? Uh, we imposed an economic embargo on, on Gaza. You know, and it's not enough to say we've got no Palestinians to, to talk to. We, got, we said this about Yasser Arafat, who was a corrupt guy, I know, and the PLO were not my favorite, my favorite kind of friends, you know, but we had a leadership and we said we've got nobody to talk to. Well, the PLO have now gone, now we've got really nasty guys, you know. We've got Hamas, we've got Hezbollah, and what do you say? We've got nobody to talk to. Well, which Palestinians will be ready for us to talk to? You know, nice, decent, liberal, tea-drinking, you know, Starbucks coffee kind of Palestinians are not going to emerge over the next few years for us to talk to. You know, I mean, we're going to have a real problem here. So this situation is just simply going to deteriorate. And frankly, this is, the, this is one of the fantastic and fundamental Achilles heels of this wonderful place we call the United States of America. And I just don't think it's going to, it's going to get any better. And on that note, I'll say no more. And, uh, Rob, do you want to come up with a more miserable uh, scenario because you're, you're good at miserabilism? Are you, are you mischaracterizing me again? <laughs> Not at all. No, let, I mean, let me just make a couple of points and, and, and a brief one on Israel. Firstly, I mean, a couple of points that Jessica referred to. Yes, Obama's run a superb campaign, but when the only thing, when the only objective of what you're doing with your organization is to win an election, it's rather different than being in government. Uh, when you're dealing with multiple crises, when you're dealing with a huge federal bureaucracy, which is not necessarily on the same page as you, which has entrenched institutional interests that differ from you. So I think we're going to be in a rather different situation in terms of governing than campaigning. It bodes well, but it's no guarantee of success, any more than Bush as the first MBA president was a guarantee of competent management. <laughs> Secondly, in terms of not talking to our opponents, I'd point you in the direction of Ronald Reagan's first term and Russia as an example of where actually you didn't engage with your opponents precisely because you adopted policies to push them further and further and further down the toilet until they were forced to change and forced to come to you on your terms. And I think while it's good to talk, uh, we're in a you know, post-feminist environment now, so they tell me, um, I got in touch with my feminist side over over uh, the holiday, but I didn't like the look of it, and uh, it's far too prone to consensus and being reasonable. Um, but we are in a post-feminist side, and Obama appeals to that. But the reason why Israel and Syria are talking has nothing to do with their strategic interests and have everything to do with the internal problems of Ehud Olmert and Bashar Assad over recent weeks and months. And the fact of the matter is, as Mick has made plain here, no matter how erudite your diplomacy whether you were Bill Clinton in the 1990s or Jimmy Carter in the 1970s or probably Barack Obama now, until the facts on the ground change and you are not going to persuade Hamas to decide they don't want to destroy Israel and you are not going to persuade the Iranians they don't want to do that and you are not going to dissuade the Iranians from pouring missiles into Hamas and Hezbollah more and more and more, and the situation is going to be that if the US does not resolve the Iranian nuclear program, yes, Obama seems to be indicating that he believes in traditional doctrines of engagement, and if engagement fails, containment and deterrence. But the picture in Tel Aviv looks rather different. And contrary to popular opinion, Washington cannot control what Israel does. It's often the case, in fact, that it's the tail that wags the dog. And I think in that context, 
if there is one thing I urge you to go and put down on Ladbrokes rather than the first rupture in our transatlantic relationship, it's another war in the Middle East over the next four years. Can I just, uh, very quickly, I mean, there are some factual errors there. The U.S. never did not speak to the Soviets, never. Uh, we couldn't afford to. And, uh, um, but we have adopted a very different policy over you the last You remember the Soviet years. leaders dying on Reagan? There was never a period no. where the U.S. refused sure. to talk to the Soviet Union. That is just fact. Um, secondly, there is an issue with respect to Syria that is very important, which is that Syria, it, it, you have to go look at the map um, uh, about how Hezbollah can get missiles without going through Syria. And Syria can control its borders if it chooses to. Um, so there, there, there are. I actually don't don't disagree with the view that I mean I, I have been somebody who says it all the time in the U.S. that we don't we can't have a rational conversation about Israel. I happen to believe that, um, but I do think also just to, to temper this that there will be an important difference um, between this past administration and the coming one in this respect. I think it may well be the case that, that we don't see any progress on a peace settlement in the next four years. Um, but I, it will not, we, this administration I think will not be supine in allowing the Israelis to continue to build settlements or, or to quit dismantling them. I think that will be a difference, yeah. an important one. Good. At least it won't get worse as fast. <laughs> Unfortunately, at this moment, we do have to draw uh, the proceedings to an end. I'm particularly thankful for everyone who's come out on a Friday night uh, to show up as they have. Of course, it is a Friday night. We must always remember there is life after Obama. <laughs> the evening is still young, for some of you anyway, so uh, off we go. And there's always 2012 for others. Uh, the second thing I would say is that I think it's what I find particularly interesting is that we've used very interesting words we never expected to hear again, not in my lifetime, such as historic and revolutionary. Because um, we were told history had come to an end, everything was historical, but nothing was particularly historic. I, I think that this probably is a historic moment, uh, but whether it's going to be a historic moment depends very much on whether the opportunities are seized uh, or not. Uh, otherwise, it will just be a historical moment, yeah, like, like right. many others. And the last thing I would say is I, I particularly take away from two of our speakers, uh, ignoring the historical monuments to my left, <laughs> that the Europeans uh, are at, uh, at, at the famous cusp. Uh, yes, they're going to have to pay more for Obama. They're going to have to have more troops in Afghanistan. They may have to have tougher sanctions against Iran. So if Obama is the ultimate fairy story, then the moral of that fairy story, like so many that the Europeans may learn, is be very careful what you wish for. And on that uh, note, I would like to thank uh, our three uh, speakers for coming along and sharing their views. Thank you very much.